Uh, okay, so we're in First John chapter 4. Uh, we're going to keep going through. We're almost uh, at the close of this. I think there should be about one or two more. So tonight and maybe one more or two more uh, as we close out this letter that John has been writing. Um, if you have been with us for a couple of occasions, you perhaps know the theme. Uh, I've been trying to just sort of hammer it home each time, but the theme of John is about knowledge. It's about knowing. It's about knowing how you can know that you know that you belong to Christ, that you are part of the family of God, the fellowship of the redeemed. And again, this is such a really pertinent theme, only because in that day there was a lot of doubt being cast. Uh, there was this man, uh, this is stretching back into the beginnings of our study, but there was this teacher that rose up at this day, and it's perhaps not all centered on him, but a lot of it is perhaps John sort of referencing this guy without mentioning his name. Uh, this teacher, his name was Serinthus, and he had risen up to some sort of prominence, some, somewhat of prominence in that day, and he was postulating all these theories and these ideas about how uh, those who have this knowledge of the Spirit need additional knowledge. And we would call this person a Gnostic. Uh, he probably did not call himself that. But essentially, it's, it's, yes, it's the spiritual knowledge that we have out of Jesus, but it was really just that was a, Jesus was relegated to not much more than just a good teacher. Uh, he was a good, a, a good teacher that taught us about spirituality, but there had to be this higher sort of mystical knowledge and experience that went along with your faith in order to really solidify salvation. Um, it wasn't just Jesus, the revealed Word of God, the, God, the Word of God in the flesh. It was something more, something extra. They were adding to the gospel, adding to the revelation of God. Uh, they were also... Uh, uh, one of the main sort of uh, tenets of this sort of school of thought is the fact that Jesus wasn't really God in the flesh at all. Um, he was just really, he was a person who received the Spirit of God and, and at his baptism. And before he died, uh, the Spirit of God left this man, Jesus. So therefore, the man who died on the cross wasn't God in the flesh. It was just a man. Uh, which is a horrendous theory because it ruins all of the atonement, but also it's just uh, flat out against what the Bible teaches. And you can see this is, if uh, I love thinking about this as the backstory behind not only John's letters, but also behind the backstory of John's gospel. Uh, that's why both of his, all of his writings, the three uh, letters, and then of course the gospel of John, have a really similar sort of uh, motivation. They're showing what? <laughs> Jesus is God. Uh, that's the essential theme of the Gospel of John. That's why there's so many miracles in John. It has the most miracles because it's proving Jesus' deity. It's proving the fact that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just an authoritative figure. He wasn't just a good prophet even, if you want to be even more spiritual. He was God in the flesh. That's why he begins the Gospel of John, with that really eloquent prologue, the Word of God, the Word who was God, the Word who was with God in the beginning became flesh and dwelt among us. A similar prologue, by the way, to this uh, chapter or to this uh, letter itself, First John. All of which to say, that's a long digression, just to say, this letter is all about knowledge. You can have certainty. Again, um, go, go back with me to chapter 3 and look at verse 16. We've highlighted these, but I want you to see this theme and how it's so pertinent to all of what John is writing. He says, chapter 3, verse 16, by this we know. 
Look at verse number 19, the same sort of phrase. By this we shall know. And then the, word, the verses that I have just kept going back to is in chapter 2, look at verse 20, where he says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Again, uh, he's really hitting home. You have this knowledge. You've been given it in the, in, in the relaying of the gospel and the relaying of the truth of Christ. When that, when that gospel, when that message is preached and proclaimed, that knowledge is imparted. It goes forth. Again, what does he say at the very beginning of the letter? Verse 1 of chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ (laughs) again you can kind of see again how this all is sort of coming full circle in terms of the fact that he's proclaiming the certainty of the knowledge of the fact that they have fellowship with christ by faith it's not some questionable thing based on some additional experience it is certain in the proclamation of the word it's certain because of who jesus is again that is a announcement of certainty it's certain knowledge you have all knowledge already not superstition again that's what john was up against he was up against this sort of Uh, idea that there was additional insights needed to really solidify your faith. And again, you can kind of step back and just think about it. If there's something else needed besides what Jesus has revealed, besides what the Spirit is ministering, then what is that doing? That's making the Word of God, that's making Jesus himself insufficient. You're totally sort of undercutting, swiping out from the knees what Jesus has already revealed, which... I sort of imagine that this really frustrated John and the rest of the apostles. It irked them something fierce to have the fact that they were with Jesus. They were there when he was doing all these things. They were there when he resurrected. They were there at the moment. All of this was sort of growing and ballooning in, in terms of the church. And they were there and they were, they were so adamant about this. I think you can, uh, we don't have to, but if you read again those verses that we read where he's talking about the things we've heard and seen and touched, uh, I, I challenge you just read them with just sort of an air of like frustration because you can kind of get the sense that he's sort of frustrated that he has to talk about this in one hand uh, because this guy, Sorenthus, and all those Gnostics were coming up with all these theories and here he's, no, we were there. We saw him, we'd heard him, we touched him, we were with him, we were side by side with Jesus and this wasn't just something that we made up. This was real. We were with the revealed word of God that has come manifest in the flesh. And here he's saying what? Nothing needs to be added to it. The word of God In the flesh, Jesus is the full revelation of how we become a part of the family of God. 
Nothing else needs to be added. No further revelation needs to be had. No further experience needs to be experienced. We have the full revelation of how we are brought into fellowship with Jesus in the person of Jesus. And that's what he's insisting on. That the Son of God reveals the way to God the Father through his life and death and resurrection. And that's all that's necessary for faith. That's all that's necessary for what we believe. And that is the work that the church is supposed to stand on. It's the work of Christ. It's, again, just to reference what he says there at the beginning. It was the life made manifest. Life made manifest for us is Jesus. It's God come down. And the point is, as John is here writing, you can, you can see, at least how I see John writing, he's writing from a standpoint of, of, yeah, perhaps frustration, but also he's delighting that he gets to write about this in one hand also, because there's nothing more necessary for him to preserve, for him to uphold, than the message of Jesus. And here he's writing about what is his delight, so that the church can protect that message. Uh, he's writing from a standpoint of an apologist. Again, that's that word that comes out of First Peter, that we are ready to make a defense. It's the Greek word apologia, which literally just means you're standing and defending this thing. And again, you can see that's what John is doing. He's writing from the standpoint, this is true, this is certain. This is what the church must preserve. Uh, my mind runs to Second Timothy. Um, actually, let me just read a couple of those verses, because I think what... Paul charged Timothy with is somewhat of what John is doing here with this church. In 2 Timothy chapter number 1, we find these words in this last letter of Paul's to Timothy. He says in first, uh, 2 Timothy 1 verse 13, he says, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Good deposit, of course, is sort of just a euphemism for the gospel. And he's saying, John, or he's saying, Timothy, above all else, above anything else, and again, this is Paul's last letter. This is sort of like his farewell letter, if you can imagine it that way. A farewell letter in which he's getting out everything that he is adamant about, that he wants to convey. And above all else, what Paul wants Timothy to know is that your duty, Timothy, as pastor of Ephesus, you are to guard in the power of the Holy Spirit the good deposit, the gospel, the sound doctrine of God. Don't let it be twisted. Don't let it be mangled. Don't let it be confused with other things. Your duty, Timothy, he says, is to proclaim this thing, but also to preserve it. Because this is the most important word that you have. And I think that's something of what John is doing here. As he's talking about testing the spirits in 1 John 4 at the very beginning. As we've seen, there are definite ways in which we can know if someone has a true knowledge of Christ. He's sort of been identifying that. I think that was clearly explained in the previous chapter, what we went through. At the beginning, uh, as he says effectively, that a true knowledge of God is seen in a love of God. 
Uh, That's where we get in chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. He's talking about the love of God, which informs our love of God. But then also it's seen at the end of chapter 3 in your love for your neighbor. Again, look at verse 10. By this is evident uh, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So if you want to just summarize all of chapter 3, the way in which you can know someone who, way in which you can know that this person next to you or even yourself are part of the family of God is by loving God and loving your neighbor. Which is a good thing that John summarizes that way because it's exactly how Jesus summarized the law. If you remember from Matthew 22 when he's asked that question by the lawyer, what's the most important commandment in the law? What does Jesus say? Love God and love your neighbor. And you can, John is essentially synthesizing the same sort of message to this church that above all else, that's how you can know that you really belong to the Father. But then here he expresses another manner in which believers could know if, if they, or anyone else for that matter, were from God. Again, it comes from this, as he says in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now John, of course, has already made mention of these false prophets in a previous section. If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 18, this is what he says about them. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. And we talked about when we went through that, that he's, he's making this bold claim. That these false teachers who are claiming something about Jesus that's clearly false, he's linking them with the Antichrist himself. <laughs> Which is a really strong claim, but he's saying that's how serious their doctrine is. That's how serious their falsehood is. That it's not just getting something bad. They are downstream of the Antichrist himself. So much so that they are basically like little Antichrists. And he's now even saying again that there are many false prophets that are in the world. He's basically saying, you know them. You're familiar with them. But here he's stressing the idea that we can know where their true allegiance lies. And how can we know it? Well, the test is simple. Listen to what they say. Again, look at verse number two. By this you know. That's that phrase we highlighted. Here's how you can have knowledge. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses is a word of proclamation, a word of verbal assent that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Again, he's saying the same thing. That that spirit of Antichrist is really known, chiefly known by one particular thing. It's the denial of who Jesus is. Those who confess Jesus' deity and humanity, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh, those are, that's some, one of the tipping points by which you can know that this person is speaking in the spirit, in truth. And you can 
again, I, I, I get the sense that John is sort of leaning into this grandfatherliness, this sort of grandfather tone. As he's saying, here's how you can tell who is a false prophet, a pseudo-preacher, a fake speaker of the truth. Because there's many that are out there, he's saying. You're familiar with them, I'm familiar with them. And if you wanted to put this in sort of common vernacular, it would just be, don't believe everything you hear, John is saying. Don't just take everything you're told at face value and be like, oh yeah. And I think this is really good advice, especially for us in today's day and age. Just because something is said behind a pulpit doesn't mean that it's worth hearing or receiving or applying. That's something that we have to sort of just put our minds and our hearts and our souls in the fact that just because this preacher is up there saying something does not mean that it's something automatically worth receiving. Instead, what does John say? Just like John's audience, we are called to what? Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Test meaning examine, prove, try. It's the same word that you would find in 1 Peter where he's talking about we have been tested, we've been proved as, as though uh, a, a metallurgist is putting metal in a fire. It's the same sort of idea, the same sort of notion. See the genuineness of this speaker, of this one who is, is positioning himself as speaking in the spirit. Test that spirit, whether it's true. Examine it. Test it for what it's worth. And what they're saying. And how do we to test it? Again, notice what he said. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the spirit of God. By every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Here again. All it, I love how the word of God makes so much sense. In terms of what the spirit of God is. What what. Does the Spirit of God reveal? If, if we are to test the spirits that are in front of us, if we are to test the speaker who is in front of us, claiming that he's giving us a word from the Lord, what are we to test him against? Well, we're to test him against what God's Spirit has revealed. And what does the Spirit of God reveal to those he indwells? The work of Christ. This is the really simple test of how you can know if the preacher is preaching true or preaching false. It's, does it line up with what God has revealed in Jesus by the Spirit, or does it not line up with that? This is really important, because before Jesus was crucified, in those waning, and I love the book, of, well, let's go there. Go to John chapter 14. I want you to see how all of this lines up, because I think all of John's writings really are really similar in terms of tone and scope. Actually, go to John 16. Before Jesus was crucified in those last sort of discourses, he gives his disciples this assurance that there was going to be one that was going to come after him that was going to guide them into all truth. Notice John 16 and look at verse 13. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he, notice, will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
Of course, the spirit of truth that he references, he also calls the helper or the comforter. It's the Holy Spirit of God who is being promised to the apostles, being promised to those who would follow after him. And this is a steady theme during those waning hours of Jesus' earthly life. Go back with me to chapter 14, John 14, and look at verse 15. John 14, 15. He says, if you, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Uh, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jump down to verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper and the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Notice again, jump down to chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. What's the point? The point is that the, the primary, the singular function and ministry of the Holy Spirit to those who believe is what? Nothing more or less than bringing to remembrance the work of the Son. That's what he's there for. That's how he guides you into truth, by pointing you back to Jesus, by pointing you back to what he's done. He's there to show you that he and his work is finished, it's accomplished for you. Here's how he guides you into all truth. Again, I think he's vividly, uh, John, I think, is vividly recalling these sorts of moments when he's writing his letter. Hey, I, I almost get the sense that he's recalling all this very scene where Jesus is sort of divulging the fact that the work of the Spirit who's going to come upon them is entirely focused on the work that Jesus was just about to finish. <laughs> again, 1420, let me just highlight them again. 1426, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I have said. What a great word. 1526, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Again, John 16, 13, or uh, yeah, verse 13, he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He is declaring Jesus the word of the father that's what the spirit of the spirit of christ is declaring to those who are christ this is the ministry of god's spirit this is why it's so important when you hear people talk about the holy spirit and they're talking about all these things being done in the spirit is it honoring christ or is it honoring something else or someone else or even the person that's talking about it if the honor is being given to someone else or something else other than Jesus, it's not in the Spirit. Because the work of the Spirit honors Christ. The work of God's Holy Spirit honors God's Son. Because that's what the Spirit is about. That's what He has come to testify. 
That's how he grows us. He grows us in the knowledge of who? Of Jesus. How? By ministering the truth of Jesus to us. That's how, how Ephesians 4, we are, we are built up. We are grown up in Christ by the Spirit of Christ. That's what God's Spirit does. He doesn't testify about anything other than the work and word of the Son, which is exactly what John is saying in this letter. John 4, 2, again, 1 John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. How? By every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. It's the same thing. The Spirit is going to come and testify about me, Jesus is saying. And John is saying, how do you know whether the Spirit is true? It's whether it's testifying about Jesus. <laughs> That's the same argument, the same truth he's expressing. The basic confession and conviction that Jesus has come in the flesh, again, we can say is not so basic. He's tying it up into the, 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 the thing that they ought to know above everything else. And in fact, we could say that this, this tenet of doctrine that we believe, that Jesus is not just a man. He's not some sort of mystical person. He is God in the flesh. He's God and man, 100% God, 100% man at the same time. Believing that changes Everything, it means everything. And if that's not true, everything falls apart. Jesus cannot be, as we talked about this morning, he cannot be our perfect priest unless he is God. And also unless he is man. Only, only ones who are like us can be our priests. That's why it says Jesus was made like us. But he is a priest to perfection. How? Because he is God. He can, he can shoulder the full weight of the world's sins. Because he is the infinite made incarnate. So you see, this, this, this one truth means everything. That's why John is writing about it. That's why he's saying, this is no small thing. What Serenthus and these guys are teaching is no just light little error of, of a misstep. This means everything. You know, I think it's to our shame that we, and I'm, I'm talking to myself, that we don't preach about Jesus' coming down, his birth, uh, except for in December. We only preach Luke 2 come December. Which is actually kind of ironic because that's the central thing of what we believe. It's, it's to our shame that we preach Luke 2 in December and 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection in April or March whenever Easter falls. When those were the two basic things of all of the apostles preaching. If you examine Acts, the two things that they were confessing are what? That Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ and he resurrected from the dead. That's... In a nutshell, basically every sermon that they were giving, they were standing on that. It's not just a truth for Christmas time. It's the lifeblood of what we believe. Everything flows from that confession that he is God in the flesh. It's the root of everything that he did and said. So if this is the principal confession. That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is, if this is the center of what we believe, the heart of the gospel that we proclaim, that we hold dear. If this is the principal thing that the Spirit has been sent to promote. 
And likewise, it's also the central, the primary way that we can, again, testify and examine and and try and prove whether the one speaking is a false prophet or a true one. Again, notice verse 2. By this, all of that leads us to this. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. He puts it very simply. That's how you can know. That's how you can, that's how you can tell. In the immediate context, I think John, is, of course, is aiming all of his frustration at that guy, Serenthus, and his school of other students that were with him. Proclaiming this sort of mystical, extra-biblical knowledge that you had to have. But I think this, these, uh, this idea of the pseudo-prophets is also relevant for us. Because there's many in our own day, I think, who stand behind pulpits and are proclaiming the fact that they have knowledge and that they are the proprietors of this very specific certain set of knowledge, but really they're just pretenders. Really, I think, in fact, if you wanted to be more sort of visual with it, we could use Jesus' words, that they're nothing but wolves in sheep's clothing. I think that's who John is referencing here. When he's saying test the spirits, he's saying examine them and, and try them and see who they really are. Because their true colors will be revealed. Just like a piece of gold and you put it in the fire, all of the dross, all of the slag is going to be burnt off. And he's saying basically the same thing in a certain way. Put the spirits, test what they're saying, take what they're, what they're proclaiming out of their mouths, put it in the fire of God's word and see what burns off and see what's left. Because what's left is probably not truth. If they're not confessing that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh, then they're not speaking out of the true spirit of God. I think we're, we're familiar with that adage, wolves in sheep clothing. But I think, at least in my experience, identifying who is a wolf is a much tougher project. And I think that's so because um, error, as he's going to talk about, is not always uh, dressed up um, in things that look like error. There's not often like a neon sign that says, look at me, I'm speaking bad things. It's usually, it's dressed up in the garb of truth. And I think that's John's issue. John's issue, and I think my sort of issue whenever I see it about, is not necessarily these overt false prophets, but it's actually the ones who are sort of dressing up and identifying themselves as true prophets. They're deceitful. They're deceivers, they're pretenders, they're pseudo-prophets. They're wolves dressed to the nines in the pretense of truth. And believe me, I could probably name names, but I don't want to do that. This is, this is not gossip hour. <laughs> There's lots of preachers and teachers that are out there today that are nothing but false teachers. And my challenge to you is not just to take what I'm, again, I'm applying the same test to me. Don't just take what I say. And say, that's, of course, that's it. That's what it is. Test it against the Spirit. That's why you should have your Bibles in front of you. <laughs> Test the words that are coming forth against the Spirit of God, against the revealed Word of God. Listen thoughtfully and carefully and faithfully. 
you know, preaching is not just a one-way street. It's not just the speaker getting up and just vomiting stuff on you. That's gross. But just, you know, delivering stuff. Here's the stuff you need to learn. Actually, the, the, the event of preaching, if I can put it that way, the event of the sermon or the Bible school lesson, whatever venue it is, when the word of God is open, there's a two-way sort of street happening where the preacher is supposed to be delivering the word in faith. But at the same time, those who are listening are called to listen to the word in faith. So likewise, it's an event of faith that the one is delivering the word in faith, we are receiving the word in faith, and when that happens, when we receive the word, God's word through God's spirit, through God's messenger, what happens? We are changed, we are built up, we are solidified in what we believe. That's when the church truly sort of worships. That's how the church is built up. It's not just a speaker giving you a nice TED talk on how to live your life better. It's actually when the truth of God is delivered in faith and it's received in faith and the spirit of God, the spirit of truth does his work. One of um, my professors from seminary, he said in a book he wrote that the pulpit is the prow of the church. Where it goes, the church will go. And I think that's really true. I think you can tell a lot, tell a lot by what's being said from behind a pulpit. And if it's true, and I think it is, if it's the instrument by which the church is directed, it's absolutely essential that what? That the pulpit be filled with the spirit of truth, not of error. What does he say in verse 6? We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and of error. It's a little wonder, I think, that the American church, as we know it today, is in the condition that it's in. Because I think there's far too many pulpits and, uh, that have become platforms for what? For whatever the speaker wants. They're actually not really speaking out of a spirit of truth. Actually, you could probably use verse 5 as a description of far too many pulpits. What does he say? They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Sadly, I think that identifies far too many platforms. Where, yeah, the word of God is opened, and it might even be on the screen, but it's not actually getting out. And that's the hard thing, because when you see a Bible opened or you see a Bible on a screen, you're automatically to think, what? This has got to be true. No, test it against the word. Is this person saying something that lines up with what God's word reveals? There was one preacher who was basically saying, I'm not going to reference who it is, because I want, it would be easy for me to do that. I want you to listen. If you're listening to other podcasts of other preachers, God bless you. I want you to. You should listen widely to other preachers, but test what they say. There's one preacher who was talking, and, and they were talking about the fact that, that when they, they basically said that when Jesus was on the cross, that he was no longer the Son of God. And my ears perked up, because that's exactly what John is saying. That's exactly what John was trying to argue against. And this is not an old uh, sort of sermon. This is right now, today. That this was said. I think it was maybe a couple years ago. But regardless, you get the idea. 
It's not an old thing. This is a present battle that's being fought where the truth of God is being deceitfully undercut. It's being so, so deceitfully swayed and moved off from the truth. Again, that's why we can't just take everything as though it's truth. We test it. We receive it and we test it. Instead of being filled with that grand news that God in Christ has overcome the world already, as he says in verse 4, a lot of modern pulpits are podiums for entertainment and error and falsehood. And some of them are even stages from which these pseudo-prophets try to sell you on their version of religion and hope and meaning and value and worth and all those sorts of things. And by sell, I mean sell sometimes. (laughs) You hear them, they're like, put your seed money in. We hear about those, but they're nothing but peddlers. And that's the true irony. This is, this is again, the true irony. The irony is, by trying to sell you something, they revealed just how far off they truly are. Because the true church of God, the spirit of God, is never in the business of selling you anything. Because the only thing that the church has to offer is always given for free. Because it's nothing but good news. The only message that the Spirit ministers is relayed without charge. It's the work of Christ done for you. And the point is, that's the church's message. And the point is, John is saying, if there's someone standing up in front of you and they're saying something that seems off, test it against the Spirit and he will guide you into all truth. Test it against God's revealed word. Test every sermon against the scriptures. And that's how you're built up in the truth. And again, if you want a a point of application, bring your Bible or bring your phone. If you have your phone on your, if you have your Bible on your phone, that's fine too. Just be following along. That's one of the reasons why I haven't resorted to putting stuff on the PowerPoint. Not just because I think that's wrong. But it should get us in the practice of reading and following along in the same part of Scripture. Because it's not just me as some sort of channel through which I have a special sort of corner on God's revealed word. No, this is a word of God that you can participate in. This is God's truth that you have a part in as well. And I think if you do that, you won't be led astray. You won't go wrong. If you test the spirits, there's a lot of, there's a lot of voices out there. There's a lot of podcasts of sermons and preachers that you can subscribe to all well and good. Test them against God's word. See if what they're saying really lines up with what God's word says, because God's truth, God's spirit will always lead you to Jesus. If you're being led to focus on yourself Probably not the Spirit. Probably not God's Spirit moving moving you. God will lead you. God's Spirit, His Word, His revealed will culminates in who? In Jesus Christ. Therefore, that's who we are drawn to. And here, that's who John is, is expounding. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the one by whom we know truth and by whom truth is revealed. So to this church, he was telling them to test by that singular confession. And the same for us. 
As we go about and we hear other people talk and we hear other sermons and other preachers test against God's word of truth, it means everything. That confession is so critical for us to keep in mind. If you do that, you won't be led astray. You won't be led off into some, uh, we could use the words from Ephesians, you won't be uh, sort of tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. He says that in Ephesians 4. He's talking about how those who can be mature and built up in the knowledge of Christ, if they are truly growing and and building themselves up through the Spirit of God and the knowledge of God, they won't be tossed about. You can imagine, uh, again, imagine a, a, a boat on the water being tossed to and fro because it has no anchor. It has nothing to keep it solid, to keep it steady, to keep it still. But we, the church, through the Spirit of God, have that sure and steady anchor. And that anchor is who? It's Christ. That's what we have. And God's revealed word always reveals where we can find that anchor. That anchor is Christ.